Alright, so it's Pentecost Sunday, and so we're going to look at the Sermon of St. Peter on the first Pentecost day, which is in Acts chapter 2. If you have a Bible and want to turn there, or uh, you can follow along the same text as printed there in your bulletins in Acts 2. First Christian sermon. Um, what do you suppose Peter is going to lead with in this first sermon? I'd be thinking, well, everybody likes Jesus as a moral example and a teacher of peace. I'm going to emphasize that and uh, hopefully kind of butter people up that way. And then if I need to talk a little bit about the more angular doctrinal parts about what you have to believe about him or repenting of sins and things like that, I might work that in uh, slightly at the end. But that's not Peter's approach. Um, Sorry, I don't know why I'm wafting in and out, but anyway. Um, Like almost all the other apostles, whenever they speak or write, they focus most of their attention on the events at the end of Jesus' life, his uh, uh, crucifixion and his resurrection. Would I be better off just without this? You might be able to concentrate, but I can't. So I'll just yell at you. my natural state anyway. Um, They all talk about the end of Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven, the beginning of his reign, and focus all on this as things that you have to believe are true, rather than on the things that are the easy parts to believe about Jesus and usually some of the more popular things. And the reason that they do that, and Peter really does it here, he's relentless in this sermon, is that what we need to fix us and to fix the world, which is why Jesus came, uh, what we need is uh, inescapably bound up with what happened at his death and his resurrection and ascension. And so that's why all the focus uh, stays there, and it's the focus of Peter's sermon here. And so I want us to think about that again and remember that this is what is uh, of the core essence of being a Christian, the Christian faith, as we unpack what he says. So this is just an excerpt of his sermon. Apparently it's a much longer sermon, and I take some comfort in that. So uh, I will pray for us, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, we ask that you would um, do what you did the day that Peter preached this sermon, which is uh, send your Holy Spirit and open our hearts to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So read with me, beginning at verse 22, here in Acts 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption." You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. 
Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah, or the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we're all witnesses. And being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Um, probably the better term there is race. Save yourself from this crooked race. He didn't mean just the people who happened to be alive there were peculiarly, peculiarly bad. He means that this world is broken, as we all know, and we can't get along with each other. Uh, we're not psychologically whole. Our environment is a problem for us, and we are not rightly related to God. Uh, the world is crooked, the crooked race, and Peter's saying, you need to be rescued from this. And so he says, what are you going to do? Save yourselves from this crooked race. It's not an uncommon question. People talk about it all the time. The idea that the world is broken is not news to anybody or surprising. People talk about it all the time. What are they going to do about the broken world? Politicians talk about it every time they give a speech. This is what's wrong politically with our country and wrong with the world, and this is what we can do through laws to fix that. Now, uh, inventors say uh, we can solve what's broken in the world, hopefully, with increases in technology, and I hope they get far with that, but uh, it's never enough for us, right? Um, revolutionaries all have a scheme by which we can turn the world back up right side up, and singers sing about this a lot, you know. Joni Mitchell, and maybe a few of you are old enough to know these songs. Robert knows because he was born uh, 50 years too late, saying, we have to get ourselves back to the garden. We have to get ourselves back to the garden. Or a more well-known one that has stood the test of time even better is John Lennon's song, Imagine. And when people bump up against the brokenness of the world, they're very prone to drag out John Lennon's song, Imagine, and sing it uh, for comfort and for hope that maybe things could be better, maybe things uh, 
could be the way I know somehow deep down they ought to be if people could just get their act together a little bit, right? He sings, uh, imagine all the people living for today. Imagine the people living life in peace. Imagine us uh, living as one in the world instead of being at each other's throats all the time. And uh, who, doesn't, who doesn't feel the resonance of that beautiful dream? Right? There's a lot of sentiment that is easy to affirm in that. And you see, whenever there's a war, there are going to be people who uh, stand together with candles and start singing Imagine. Right? It's uh, pretty predictable and pretty understandable. A couple of years ago, you may remember uh, the uh, jihadist attack in Brussels, Brussels Belgium. Uh, remember, they poignantly showed a bunch of young people who gathered together and were holding hands and singing Imagine uh, because they were distressed about what they had seen about man's inhumanity to man in the jihadist attacks. Pretty much any disaffection that people find with the world will send them to singing Imagine. And maybe it's my nature, but uh, I just want to say that Imagine's a bad dream, right? It's not a good dream. For the world, it's not a way to save ourselves from this crooked race and fix ourselves. It doesn't work that way. It's a bad dream for several reasons. One is it posits the idea that there'll be no afterlife. Uh, imagine a world where there's nothing to live, to uh, kill, or die for, um, which sounds good, right? We ideologues killing for their beliefs is one of the big problems in the world, but. When you have a life where there's nothing worth dying for, you have a life in which there's nothing worth living for, too. And so, ultimately, it's a sentiment of despair to say, imagine a world where there's nothing to kill or die for. And then he says you should imagine the world with no religion, which I can understand, too, because religious violence is a plague. And um, if we could have a world free of religious violence, we'd have a much better world understand his longing for that, but there are people who have dreamed that dream before. Right? Uh, Chairman Mao dreamed of a world in which there was no religion, and it did not bring out a more humane side of him. It unleashed his cruelty. Pol Pot dreamed of a world without religion. Stalin dreamed of a world without religion, and it didn't have the good effect that John Lennon thought it might have. Um, but the biggest problem with Lennon's dream um, is something that's not said that much in the song but is implied. But he says it explicitly when he says, I hope that one day you will join us and the world will live as one. Where's the problem in the world? Is with you, <laughs> not with us, right? If you would join us, then everything would be okay. Right. That's the inissimal part of Lenin's dream, is this contentment with your own righteousness. I'm not the problem, I'm the solution. And I just need more people to agree with me, and then the world would be good. Right. Have you heard people, though, with those ideas? You know, this is the very idea that makes religion violent. I and my tribe are right. Uh, and... We're the solution, and all of you who disagree with us are wrong, and therefore, you should change and be with us. And if you won't change and be with us, we're going to coerce you to change and be with us because we're right. We're really right, and you need to be with us so things can be the way they're supposed to be, and it's the source of violence. 
uh, it's the source of Christian violence. When Christians become violent, it's when they uh, become self-righteous and content with their own goodness. Uh, But it's true of any jihadist of any stripe as well. It's also true of politicians who become cruel. There's a contentment with their own righteousness. Have you heard anyone uh, looking for your vote who has even intimated that you and he or she might be the problem in our country? It's the other tribe that's the problem, not us. And the way to fix that is for there to be more of us who impose our will on them. Because we're content with our own righteousness. We're the goodies. They're the baddies. Right? And therefore, whatever we do in the name of our goodness is going to be okay. John Lennon had the exact same dream as Vladimir Ilyich Lennon. And it was driven by the same contentment with their own goodness. Lennon, I-N, thought that he was God's own gift to earth. He thought he was great. He thought he was good. He thought his ideology would fix the world, would rescue us from this corrupt generation, and uh, justified all sorts of uh, coercive power and cruelty in that name. Contentment with our own righteousness is the problem. So Peter, when he stands up to preach, says, I have a different dream for you that's a better dream a different way that you can be rescued, that this broken world can be set back right side up again. And it's a dream not of contentment with your own righteousness, but it's a dream of grace. It's a dream of being rescued by God when you don't deserve it. And it's a compelling message because Peter's the one preaching it. How in the world did Peter get picked to preach at Pentecost? What's the most famous thing that's happened in his life up to this point? It's his betrayal of Jesus. He denied Jesus three times the night of Jesus' arrest. Abject failure. After protesting, who's going to be so loyal? And uh, Jesus comes to him in the the gospel passage we read uh, and restores him and forgives him. And he says, I want you to feed my sheep because you're somebody who understands that the hope of this world is the grace of Jesus, not any goodness in anybody. So Peter stands up to preach. And he says, in this very hard-to-take sermon, which, did you feel how relentless it was? He didn't tell a joke at the beginning to warm up the crowd. He didn't say anything flattering to them ever. Um, But it's really relentless because he says, here's the deal. I've I've got a dream for how the world can be fixed. But in order to live this dream, you have to realize that you're the problem, not the solution. You're the problem. And that's a very hard pill to swallow. When he says, save yourselves from this corrupt race, it really has more of a passive sense than that. It's let yourself be saved from this corrupt race. Let yourself be rescued. And that's what he goes on to preach about. He says in verse 23, and if you're like a philosophical, theological debate kind of person, this is a really great verse. (laughs) it, It kind of blows your categories. But he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So afterwards, you can discuss the mysteries of divine providence and human agency. And I hope you figure that out. Um, But this is God's plan all along, he said. That there's going to be a substitute for us. That the world is broken. It's a corrupt race because we have declared our independence from God and decided we'll live on our own terms. Um, 
maybe very morally, but certainly on your own terms. And because of that, the world has unraveled that God made. When that relationship with God broke, everything else broke with it. And he says his plan all along is for Jesus to come and to be a substitute for us, to end the war with God by dying in our place on the cross. And now that God has ended the war with us through what Jesus did, he's now uh, fixing all the collateral damage from that war and all the things that are broken in our psyches and our relationships and in our communities and everything else that makes the world a crooked race. He's begun to do this. It's always been God's plan. But you did it, right? which is very much the point of his sermon. This is God's plan, but you're culpable. Um, you did this through lawless men. You did this when you should have known better. And that's the part that you would think would have been very hard to swallow for anybody listening to him. Right? You killed the Messiah that you'd ostensibly been waiting for your whole lives. You rejected and killed him. And... Uh, it's a very hard message for people to accept, you know, that I need a savior like this and that my life where I've just been trying to mind my own business and be a pretty decent person is actually offensive to God. That's that doesn't feel like my life. My life feels like uh, things aren't quite right, but I just need a few tweaks to make me a better person and everything would be OK. Uh, but what Jesus always said and what got Jesus killed was saying, no, you're, you're more broken than that. And the remedy for your brokenness is, is much more dramatic and severe than that. It, it requires the death of the Holy Son of God for you to be fixed. And uh, that's just really humbling uh, and offensive news to hear. But Peter doesn't pull the punch on it. He says, basically, you should have known this. Right, his, he, he has two texts from the Old Testament, from the Psalms that he quotes, saying, look, this is built into the system all along. You're, you're Jews. You should know this. Psalm 16, it says uh, the Holy One isn't going to see decay uh, or corruption. And uh, you should have known to expect that the Messiah is going to be raised from the dead. I've read Psalm 16 quite a number of times. I probably would not have figured out before there was a New Testament, that I was supposed to assume, figure out from that that the Messiah is going to be resurrected. But Peter said, you should have known from that. And then he says from Psalm 110, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until the world is set back right side up. My enemies are under my feet. He said, you should have known when David was talking about that, that he didn't mean just him. David wasn't going to rescue you from the broken race. Uh, and somebody like David who comes along later isn't going to do that either. It's going to take a much greater David. It's going to take God himself, basically, to fix what's broken in the world. And you should have known that because uh, this is written in your scriptures. And then he says, also, you saw his signs and wonders. You saw people healed. For all we know, Lazarus was there that day who used to be dead, right? And people knew him. And he says, and you've seen his resurrection. We're witnesses of that. But more than 500 people were witnesses of that. And you know where the tomb is. Um, this is verifiable. Ask somebody. Go see for yourself. And he's saying, you know this, so you should know good and well that Jesus really was the promised Messiah, and yet you crucified and killed him. And so uh, this is pretty terrible news, right? You missed the Messiah that you'd ostensibly been waiting for. 
Do you know the story of the dog Gellert? Yes, because you're a preacher. Preachers love this story. <laughs> the dog Gellert. I'm surprised I haven't told it to you before. It's a story of a, uh, a feudal lord in Wales a couple of hundred years ago who lived in a dangerous place that had lots of wild animals, especially large wolves that were dangerous. And he had a young toddler son. And so he had the dog Gellert, who was a very large dog and a very faithful dog that he kept with him, loved the dog. Uh, and he really had him there to protect his son. So when he would go off to hunt, the dog could stay there and guard his uh, toddler son from any harm. One day, he comes back home after a hunt, and the dog Gellert comes to meet him, but he's uh, frazzled looking and dripping with blood. And he looks around, and the whole house has been uh, knocked over. Things are in disarray. And he quickly runs to check on his son, and the crib is empty. The son isn't there. And he turns around, and he says, you faithless dog. And he takes his sword, and he kills Gellert, the dog. What kind of guardian are you for the young master? But then he hears his son's voice, who is in the floor behind his crib, playing with the hair of a huge dead wolf. And he realizes that the blood on the dog Gellert was not his son's blood, but was this wolf's blood that Gellert had saved his son and he had mistaken and killed him instead. You see why preachers like that story? Because <laughs> it's so like us in the gospel. It's horrifying to him to see that what he assumed was true is not true. Uh, that he got it completely backwards. It's, it's humiliating and horrifying to think that your verdict is that wrong about life and God and yourself and the world. And Peter says this is what has happened with the Jewish people that he's speaking to on the day of Pentecost. He's saying you should have known, but what's happened is you've killed the one who came to your rescue. You have ignored and despised the one who's loved you and come to your rescue. And it says that when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Just say they were convinced. It says they were cut to the heart. The difference between saying, I know I've broken God's law, and saying, I know I've broken God's heart. The uh, difference between saying, I'm guilty, and saying, I'm undone. I'm melted. I've ruined things that cannot be fixed. I've ignored my only hope. It's a hard sermon, right? a relentless sermon, but it's a sermon that speaks about hope. And Peter gives them hope at the end and says that you can actually be forgiven, that you can be reconciled to God through what Jesus did, even though you were complicit in his death. And as Christians, we all know that we, too, are complicit in his death through our rebellion. But he gives them hope at the end, um, sort of like Eustace Scrub. You know Eustace Scrub, don't you? A lot of you do. Uh, one thing I had for the kids in their coloring. The, uh, Eustace Scrub, there was a once a boy named Eustace Scrub, and he almost deserved it. That's how Lewis introduces him. Right? He was the pill in the troop of the Narnians, and uh, they were on an island, and the magician's nephew, and he wanders off by himself and kind of gets lost, and he runs across a dragon slayer, sees the dragon who 
right at that moment, dies of old age outside the lair and said he didn't really know what to expect with dragons and lairs because he hadn't read any of the right books. But he goes in, uh, down and sees the dragon, and then he goes into his lair and he finds all of these coins and crowns and jewelry. It's the dragon's hoard. And Eustace is pretty fired up about this. He finds a bracelet and he slips it on, but it's too big for his forearm, so he slips it up to his upper arm, and then he's reveling in all of the uh, stuff that's there in the dragon's hoard until he finally falls asleep. And he dreams a dream with greedy, dragonish thoughts. And then he wakes up and realizes that what was on the inside of him has now become his outsides. He's turned into a dragon. He's become a dragon and isn't a boy anymore. And uh, he's in great pain because the bracelet is constricting his arm, which is swollen now. And, uh, and he's in distress because he's a dragon. <laughs> and uh, tries to reconcile with the rest of the troop, but it doesn't really go well. He's cut off from his humanity. And finally, he meets Aslan, the Christ figure in the stories, who takes him to the top of a mountain where there's a well, but it's really more of a, a marble pool that's there that looks like it would be very refreshing and it might ease the pain of his arm and things like that and wants to get in and Aslan says, yes, but first you must undress. And so he says, oh, it's my dragon skin. So he, he starts peeling at his skin and is able, like a reptile shed skin, he's able to pull off his dragon skin and throw it on the ground and it's nasty and ugly looking and then he's ready to get in the water and he looks down and he realizes he's still a dragon. And so... He tries again, and he, he pulls off another skin and throws it on the ground. It's even worse looking, and he starts to get in the water and realizes that he's still a dragon. And he tries one more time, and then he looks in despair, and Aslan says, you have to let me undress you. And uh, this is what it says. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. When he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone, and then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. I turned into a boy again. And that's, that's the gospel story. That's the sweet side of Peter's mean sermon, right? Is that the pain of being revealed by God is a, a pain that leads to our redemption, a pain that leads to our healing, a pain that leads to forgiveness and reconciliation with God. And so when Peter says that what they should do about this is repent... He means turn away from your own dreams of saving yourself and fixing what's wrong with you yourself and embrace the dream of grace in Jesus Christ. Um, put all your hope in Jesus Christ to have your war ended with God, to have 
what's broken in, your, in you and in your world fixed. That's what it means to repent. And if you haven't been baptized, be baptized, which none of them had been baptized yet. This was day one of the, of the uh, Christian church. Right? But if you haven't already been baptized, be baptized. Because this is a better dream. It's a better dream for us to cling to. I mean, the idea that we could live in a world that's fixed, with bodies that don't work against us, with psyches that are whole, with relationships that are as peaceful and delightful as we would wish they could be, a face-to-face relationship with God that isn't full of shame, that isn't full of anxiety and conflict, but is just delighted and loving. And all that, yours for the asking. That's a great dream. That's a dream that some people reject because it sounds too good to be real. Like it sounds sentimental rather than real. But the point Peter makes here and the point that we cling to as Christians is this hope is real and as certain as Jesus' tomb is empty. Now let's pray.